Lord's great faithfulness together in song. Take your Bibles, turn along with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. First Peter four. The theme we've identified in studying First Peter is gospel hope for troubled times. Gospel hope for troubled times. The gospel runs throughout the book of First Peter, and it runs throughout our passage this morning. In our text this morning in 1 Peter chapter 4 verses 7 through 11, Peter describes for us what a gospel-centered church looks like. A church, a local church, is not like any other group of Christians. It's not like any other organization even Christian organization. As helpful and good as other Christian organizations may be, the church alone finds its mandate in Scripture. The church is a local gathering of believers committed and submitted to the Lord and to one another by covenant membership led by biblically qualified elders, served by biblically qualified deacons. The local church oversees the administration of the two sacraments or ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. The local church practices biblical church discipline and restoration. And in the words of Acts 2.42, the local church devotes itself to the apostles' teaching, doctrine, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. The local church, then, is to be the primary context in which the biblical one another's are practiced and where disciples are made. As we say in our own mission statement, we are a gospel-centered community committed to making disciples who love Jesus Christ and who love others in Jesus' name. So that's what a local church is. But what does such a community of believers being transformed by God's grace in the gospel actually look like? What is it that will characterize them and distinguish them from other organizations, other groups of people? Well, Peter shares with us in our text this morning some of the distinctive marks of a gospel-centered church. So let me read for us from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11, where we will see these distinctive marks of a gospel-centered church. 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11. Peter writes, he says, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. 
Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as the one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. So that in all things... God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus, we long and desire that you would teach us this morning. Teach us what we ought to be. Teach us who we are. And how we ought to live and think and love. Teach us the distinctiveness of the local church, the importance, the vitality, the centrality of the local church. Teach us the foundational nature of the gospel in building your church, in growing your church, in deepening your church in conviction and in gospel witness. Lord, we want to be that distinctive church, marked out by the gospel, marked out by these characteristic marks. In so doing, Lord, we know that we will glorify you, will be effective Thank you, Lord Jesus, that where we fall short, there is grace and mercy. Where we have room to grow, you give us the power to do so through your spirit and your word and the fellowship of the body as we encourage each other and all the more as we see the day drawing near. So we thank you, Lord Jesus, for the church established Through your blood, Jesus, empowered by your spirit, guided by your word and truth, guide us today in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to see in 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11, six distinctive marks of a gospel-centered church. This is who we are and this is who we aspire to be. Now, this morning, we're just going to be looking at the first three of these distinctive marks, okay? So just half of them this morning. The other half, Lord willing, we'll look at next Sunday. Now, what each of these marks has in common is their connection to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Each of these distinguishing marks of the local church, a gospel-centered church, is fueled by and informed by the gospel itself. Without the gospel, each of these distinctives loses their true meaning. Without the gospel at the center, the local church just becomes a club for religiously inclined people. The gospel must remain at the center of every local church. Otherwise, the local church loses its purpose and reason for existence. 
And by saying that the gospel must remain at the center, of course, it's just another way of saying that Jesus himself must remain at the center. Jesus, who is the Lord and head of the church. Jesus, who died to bring about the birth of the church. The gospel is about Jesus. His sinless life. His substitutionary death on the cross for sinners. His burial. His resurrection three days later. His ascension to the right hand of the Father. And yes, His promise to come again. So this morning, let's look at these distinctive marks of a gospel-centered church in order that we, as a church, as individuals making up the church, may each strive, may each grow in these distinctive marks personally so that we, as a body, are reflecting these things together. So first of all, a gospel-centered church possesses a last day's perspective. A last day's perspective. Peter states in verse 7 that the end of all things is near. Can I get an amen for that? Anybody ready for the end of all things? Well, maybe not today, huh? Well, it's near. It could be today. The end of all things is near. Now, when you hear that, you may think of some disheveled, bearded, wild-eyed old man carrying around a sandwich board that says the end is near. As though the clouds were about to part at any minute for the coming of the Lord. And while that is possible that the clouds could part at any minute for the coming of the Lord... That's not exactly what Peter is saying here. In saying that the end of all things is near, Peter is not predicting the timing of the Lord's return. He's not saying that the timing is in the immediate future. But rather, he's saying that it is imminent. Imminent means that something could happen at any moment. Not that it is guaranteed to happen in the next few moments. Peter, since the beginning of this letter, has been pressing home the idea of living with a pilgrim perspective. To live as though this world were not our home. To live as though we were citizens of another kingdom, for that is what we are as Christians. To live as though that the here and now is not all that there is and that all of this is not going to last forever. Let me just remind you of what Peter has said with regard to our citizenship, our status as aliens and strangers in this world and of the certainty of the return of Jesus Christ. In chapter 1 and verse 1, the opening sentence, Peter reminded his readers that they were aliens, reminding them that this world is not their home. In chapter 1 and verse 4, he told them that they have a great reward reserved for them in heaven, encouraging them to look to the future, 
that the best is yet to come. In chapter 1 and verse 5, he reminds them that they are protected by the power of God for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. There's yet more to their salvation. Their salvation is not complete and final in the sense that there is yet another chapter to be opened and completed in the salvation that God has for them. In chapter 1 and verse 6, he reminds them that their suffering in the present time is just for a little while. Meaning that at some point the suffering will end and will be over with when the new day dawns. Chapter 1 and verse 7, he tells them that the purpose of their suffering is for the proof of their faith which will result in praise and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus is coming again. In chapter 1 and verse 13, he urges them to fix their hope completely on the grace to be brought to them at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do you see a theme here? We're, we're only 13 verses in and we have multiple references to the return of Jesus Christ. In chapter 1 and verse 17, he tells them to conduct themselves in reverent fear during the time of their stay here on the earth. D during the time of your stay, when you go to a hotel and you check out, they say, how was your stay? You know, it's temporary. You don't live at a hotel. Most people don't. It's a temporary place. So it is for us. One day we're checking out of here. It's a temporary visit. Chapter 2 and verse 12, he urges his readers to keep their behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that they may one day believe in Jesus and glorify God on the day of his return. Chapter 4 and verse 5, he's reminded them that there is coming a future day of judgment for the lost and of blessing and reward for those who believe. Over and over again, Peter has emphasized and underscored the truth that life in this world is temporary and that there is an eternity that is yet to come that will be kicked off by the return of Jesus Christ in glory. He has emphasized again and again the truth that this world is not our home. That while we may suffer now, there is a great reward awaiting those who trust in Jesus for salvation. That is part of what it means to have the gospel at the center of our lives and at the center of our community. You see, the gospel is not just that Jesus died for our sins and rose again from the grave. The gospel also includes the truth that Jesus is coming back again. This is the Christian's blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Christian's blessed hope flows from a conviction that the end of all things is near. Do you believe that this morning? That the end of all things is near? 
The end of all things is the consummation of all things. It is the fulfillment of all of God's promises and the accomplishment of all of God's purposes for all of creation. The end of all things is the return of Jesus Christ and all that goes along with it. Jesus is coming back and his coming is near. Now, what does that mean that his coming is near? Well, that the end of all things is near does not have to mean that it's going to be in the next few minutes. Could be, but it doesn't have to mean that. To say that something is near is not so much a time indicator, but that the conditions are right for something to happen, though it may not happen immediately. In other words, to say that the end of all things is near means that there is nothing else that needs to happen in order for the end to happen. The end is imminent. It could happen at any moment. It's ready to fall. So if that's true... If the end of all things, the consummation of all things is near, the return of Jesus is near, then shouldn't that change the way we think and act? If we knew that Jesus wasn't going to come back in our lifetimes, we knew that that wasn't going to happen while we were alive, that would probably change the way we approached our Walk with Christ, the way that we approached our witness to an unbelieving world, the way that we approached our connection to the fellowship of believers. It could cause us to live complacently if we thought Jesus wasn't going to come in our lifetime. But if we lived every day as though it could be our last and that Jesus could truly come back at any moment in time, then that would probably have a significant impact on the way that we think, on the way that we live, on the decisions that we make. Living with the knowledge that the end of all things is near should give us a sense of urgency and readiness. The very thing Jesus urged us to have. You look at his parable of the return of the master in Luke chapter 12. Let me read it for you. Luke chapter 12. Jesus is calling us here to be ready for his second coming. Luke 12, 35. He tells this, says this. Be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. Be dressed in readiness and keep your, keep your lamps lit. Be ready. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. What a picture of our Lord that he presents of himself. That the one who's dressed in readiness, who keeps their lamp lit, who opens the door 
and is ready for his master's return actually ends up being served by the master. Welcomed into table fellowship, enjoying communion together around the table. Then Jesus says, whether the master comes in the second watch or even the third and finds them so, blessed are those slaves. Blessed are those who are ready. Blessed are those who are eager and waiting with eagerness for the master's return. The end of all things is near. Make no mistake about it. We are living in the last days. We are living in the last days. Now, the last days began with the ascension of Jesus to the right hand of the Father. So we've been living in the last days for a long time. But such is the case for the Christian. The Christian knows not when, knows not the day or the hour, but knows the certainty of Jesus' return. And that it could be at any moment. And so the believer and the church that has the gospel at the center of their lives readies themselves, is prepared, is watching and waiting with eagerness and anticipation for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. The end of all things is near, Peter says. Be ready. That's the first distinctive mark of a gospel-centered church. A last day's perspective. Do we have it? Boy, it's so easy to lose it. To have it and then lose it. To be distracted. To be overcome and preoccupied with the cares of this world. Things that we must attend to but things which, not, which must not become our fixation. Our focus is on the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and on our readiness for that return. All right, secondly, a gospel-centered church promotes sound thinking and sober living. Sound thinking and sober living. Well, believing that the end of all things is near should change our thinking and our living. Look what he says, verse 7. The end of all things is near, therefore, since that's true, therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Because the end of all things is near, it is imperative that we, in these days that are filled with all kinds of ideas and craziness that we be clear in our thinking and sober in our living. Peter says, first of all, that we're to be of sound judgment. Sound judgment. This means that we're to practice sound, clear thinking and reasoning that is characterized by a calmness and self-control. It means that we're to keep our heads in the midst of the chaos of the world that surrounds us. Is the world in chaos today? It sure is. Upheaval. 
But the Christian is to be steady Eddie, level-headed, exercising sound thinking, thinking through things. Christians are not called to check their brains at the door. We are not to be conformed to the world, but we're to be transformed, right? How are we to be transformed and therefore not conformed to the world? By the renewing of our minds. By receiving the truth of God's word and allowing that truth to shape us and build our convictions and grow us in discernment. We're to keep our heads in the midst of the chaos of the world around us. The British might say it this way. We're to keep calm and carry on. As Christians, we can't afford to go into panic mode and to deny truths that we know that God is in control of all things, including the chaos that seems to be present in the world. To trust Him, to look to Him, to believe Him, and follow Him. We've got to be clear, careful thinkers. And this clear thinking will help us to grow our knowledge of God's Word, our discernment, discerning truth from lies, growing us in sound doctrine, Allowing us to see the distinction between truth and error and heresy. That's what the church is to be, right? The church is to be a place of truth. A herald of truth. A place that encourages truth-seeking. 1 Peter 3.15, Paul writes to Timothy, He says, I write to you so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. The church is the pillar and support of the truth. The church holds up the truth like on the top of a pillar for all to see. Along with this clear thinking, Peter says we must be a people of sober spirit. To be sober is the opposite of being drunk, obviously, right? So we're not to be a people who are drunk. So far, it looks like we're good. But that's not the limit of what that means. Sobriety, in this context, goes far beyond just not being drunk. It talks about a way of life, a way of living certainly includes not being drunk. But it is an attitude of seriousness and and intentionality with which we approach life. Look what Peter said in 1 Peter 1.13. Just turn the page there. 1 Peter 1.13. Therefore, prepare your minds. Sound judgment, Right? Prepare your minds for action. Be clear thinking. Keep sober in spirit. 
And fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Same word there. Keep sober in spirit. To live soberly is the opposite of how they used to live. Of what characterized their life before they became believers in Jesus Christ. Remember what Peter said about that. Look back at 1 Peter 4 and verse 3. Describing their former way of life. That was not characterized by sobriety, a sober walk. 1 Peter 4 3, for the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality and lusts and drunkenness and carousing and drinking parties and abominable idolatries. You want to know what sober living is? That's the opposite of it. Since the end of all things is near, we're to think seriously as Christians and we're to live soberly as Christians. Paul says much the same thing in his letter to the Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 5 verse 15, let me read it for you. He says, therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. Live wisely making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. All of this is done within the context of the local church, of the fellowship of believers. We're to... Think clearly and live soberly in the context of the fellowship, the community of believers in the local church, encouraging one another in these things. So Peter is calling us here, in light of the nearness of Jesus' return, to live lives characterized by serious thinking and sober living. Are you a serious-minded person? Do you take seriously the commands of Christ? Do you take seriously the gospel of Jesus Christ? And then does it show itself in the way you live your life? Do you think seriously and do you live soberly? The result of this serious thinking and sober living, Peter says, is prayer. That's an interesting connection. Peter says we're to be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Those who exercise sound judgment, seeing things the way they really are, and those who have a sober spirit, living a life of steady self-control, will find themselves praying more and more where we are not thinking clearly and where we are not living soberly, we will find ourselves praying less and less. You can't grow in sound thinking and sober living without also growing in prayerful dependence upon the Lord. Why? Because the way of wisdom is the fear of the Lord and the fear of the Lord is the purpose and goal of sound judgment and sober living. Sound judgment and sober living is another way of saying 
living in the fear of the Lord. And living in the fear of the Lord results in a greater and more effective prayer life. We know that wrong thinking and sinful living can inhibit our prayers. The Bible says that. Wrong thinking and sinful living can inhibit our prayers. James 4.3 says, You ask and do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Wrong motives in prayer are the fruit of wrong thinking about life. Right? You've got the wrong value system. You're thinking wrongly about the world we live in and the kingdom that is to come. Likewise, 1 Peter 3, 7, in Peter's instruction to husbands, he says, you husbands in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers are not hindered. The way you treat your wife, husband, can negatively impact your prayer life and make your prayers ineffective. The way we think and the way we live can have a negative impact upon our prayers. Sloppy thinking and sinful living are corrosive agents to prayer. See, in some of our sloppy thinking, we can wrongly think that prayer isn't working. I already prayed that, and it didn't happen. Or we can say, well, if, if God's in control, why pray? If he's already determined the end from the beginning, he controls all things, what does my prayer do? That's sloppy thinking. And it will discourage you from praying. Likewise, our guilt from our sin if, can cause us to wrongly think that God doesn't want us to come to him, that he's sick of us, that he's so disappointed in us, he'd rather not hear from us. That's not true. Or that God won't forgive us. Or that he won't hear us when we confess our sins. No, when we are thinking soundly and living soberly, we will find all the reason we need to pray. And pray we will. Because we will be seeing the world as God sees it. We'll be thinking God's thoughts after him. And if there's anyone in life who did that perfectly, it was Jesus. Was Jesus a man of prayer? Yes. So we know we're on the right path when we see reasons to pray. We know we're on the wrong path when we think prayer is futile. When we think prayer is purposeless. When we're discouraged because of our own sin to pray. Sound thinking and sober living result in fervent praying. And that is a mark of a gospel-centered church. A church characterized by sound thinking 
by self-control, sober living, and meaningful supplication to the Lord. All right, thirdly, and this is where we'll end it today, is a gospel-centered church persists in love for one another. Persists in love for one another. In verse 8, Peter says, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Now, most of us probably like that verse a lot, because that sounds welcoming and inviting, until someone offends us. And we want to be treated with that kind of love, right? That covers a multitude of sins. But when we're on the other end of that deal and we've received offense, it's a harder verse to live out. But it's so vital and critical for the health of a local church. Peter calls the church here to stoke the fires of love for one another. And this isn't something that happens automatically. It's not something that happens naturally. Biblical love, agape love, as we know, isn't primarily a response of the emotions, of the feelings, but it is a choice, a decision to put the needs and interests and concerns of another ahead of our own, even at great personal cost. And Jesus said that one of the greatest identifying marks of the Christian will be their love for other Christians. John 13, 35, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, this isn't the first time in this letter that Peter has called us to love one another. 1 Peter 1.22, look back with me at the first chapter and the 22nd verse. Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart with your whole being. Fervently love one another. Demonstrate a sincere love of the brethren. Now back to chapter 4. We're to love one another. Just take a moment and look around. Would you please? Just, you look over here. You look over there. You two look at each other. Mm-hmm. Here we are. This is it. This is your assignment. We are to love one another fervently from the heart. Now, some fellow believers are really easy to love. And others, well, let's just say they make it harder. Right? Is that true? Is everyone equally easy to love? No. But that's where love is really tested. 
Love isn't tested so much with those with which we have much in common, those who treat us well, those who think we're great and buy us gifts. No, the quality and depth of our love is really tested with those who are a challenge for us, those who exhaust us. Those who hurt us. Those who offend us, mistreat us, or are unkind to us. And that's why Peter says, keep fervent, persist in it. Don't give up on love at the first sign of difficulty. Persist, endure. Hang in there. Be fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. That is the nature of what love does. It's forgiving. It covers. Love covers. Biblical love, agape love, is seen not so much in acts of mutual admiration but in acts of unilateral, self-sacrificial forgiveness. You see the transformative nature, the radical nature of the local church, of what we're to be? This isn't how the world works. This isn't how Twitter operates. Peter says love covers a multitude of sins. These sins are personal offenses. And biblical love is willing to let love cover over those sins so that they're no longer seen. To cover them means that they are now hidden and no longer taken into account. It's as though the offense never occurred. There's nothing between us. We treat the person who offended us as though the offense never happened. That's what biblical love does. It acts. It forgives. It covers. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, 5, that great love chapter, he says that love does not take into account a wrong suffered and that love is able to endure all things. Our natural response when someone offends us or hurts us is to either attack or retreat, right? Fight or flight. We either want to get even with them or we want to erase them from our lives and say, I'm done with you. That's it. No more. That's our natural response. But God calls us here to respond supernaturally with the love of God, the love of Christ that forgives. That's why Peter called us to put certain ways of responding off because he knows that our natural inclination is to respond in kind, to give as good as we get. 1 Peter 2, 1, therefore putting aside all malice and envy and all slander, put it aside, get it out of your life. 
Put it off. And instead, put on a fervent love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Biblical love is a fruit produced when we are walking by the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love. The first fruit. Above all these things, keep fervent in your love for one another. The Spirit will help us put off these attack and flight responses and instead respond to personal offenses in loving ways. Look what Peter said in 1 Peter 3, 8. Again, notice these threads are throughout the letter. 1 Peter 3, 8, to sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. He's talking about their internal relationship. Believer to believer, don't return insult for insult or evil for evil, but give a blessing instead, for you were called for this very purpose. It's who we are. It's our reason for being. Let love cover. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that every kind of offense is to be overlooked. Every instance of sin is to be covered. When personal sins are repeated again and again, and great harm is done, or these sins are of a dangerous nature, they cannot be covered. Jesus gave us a four-step process for confronting unrepentant sin within the church in Matthew chapter 18. And that too is an act of love, right? And in some extreme cases where the sin is actually a crime committed, then of course authorities should be called. And so wisdom will be needed to discern when love should cover a sin and when sin should be lovingly confronted. But in most cases within the body, we need to let love cover. Can you imagine what a church would be like if we confronted every instance of each other's sin, every failure, every perceived offense, if we made a federal case out of every single offense done against us, I wouldn't want to be any part of anything like that. I want to be part of a, a community of graciousness and of forgiveness and of love where offenses are covered over and treated as though they never happened. I want to be treated that way. And if I'm going to be treated that way, then I got to treat others that way. And this, Peter says, is to be our priority focus above all. It's as though he knew what would be hardest for us, but would be most essential for our health as a body. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. This is what a gospel-centered church looks like. 
this is who we are to be. This is who we are to become. This doesn't just happen collectively, right? It happens as individuals commit themselves to these principles, these marks, these identifiers, and say, Lord, help me to grow in that. Help me to have a last day's mindset, to realize you could come at any moment and to be ready and watching and waiting and allow that to affect my thinking and my living. Because you might come at any moment, help me to be Sober in my reasoning. Sober in my living. Clear in my thinking. And above all, help me, Lord, to be loving. To fervently love from the heart my brothers and sisters in Christ. And let love cover a multitude of sins. Love covers a multitude of sins. I think Jesus said something like 70 times 7, right? That's what we're talking about here. A gratuitous love, a gracious love, a forgiving love. May the Lord increasingly mark us out as Christians and as a body of Christ who love like that. Let's pray. Lord, we want to be this church And we want to be this kind of Christian. That's our heart's desire. We want to please you in every respect. And yet, Lord, we see in our lives how often we fall short, so far short of these characteristics, these marks. So we ask you to forgive us. Forgive us for living for today, this world living by the rules of this world, living by the values of this world. Give us a last day's mindset. Forgive us, Lord, for sloppy thinking, sloppy excuses, and sloppy living. Help us to be of sober judgment, of sound judgment, and sober living. And above all, Lord, help us to be fervent in our love for one another. Grow us in the love with which you have loved us and sacrificed yourself for us so that your love might cover a multitude of our sins. Help us to let love cover a multitude of sins against us. Thank you for your great love. Impart it to our hearts for one another. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.